Welcome, Bookstew viewers. I have with me today the author of a memoir, and you are looking at the book. The book is called The Skin Above My Knee, kind of an unusual title, and the author is Marsha Butler. And before we meet Marsha, I just want to read you the author's note at the beginning of the book. You can see that I have plenty of sticky notes all over the book. I really enjoyed it. This is what Marsha wrote to introduce the memoir to the reader. The events in this book took place. As my memory is sometimes fallible, dialogue is appropriate. Approximate, I'm sorry. Some names have been changed and certain events have been reordered or compressed in order to serve the story. I've made the best efforts to ensure accuracy of detail and emotion in the way I layered the two into this recounting of my life. Okay, so I'm at home reading this and the author's note just struck me and I thought, oh my goodness, if I like the author's note so much, what's the rest of this book going to be like? And it was really as amazing as the author's note. I like the fact that Marcia is very candid in the book, uh, in the introduction, the author's note about the two components that are going to make up the book and it's kind of facts and emotion. So um, now I'd like to introduce you to Marcia Butler, author of The Skin Above My Knee. Marsha, we kind of bumped into each other on Facebook, and at this point, I can't remember how, but welcome, you are my first author who came to me kind of out of the Facebook blue, and I'm very glad you're here. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Eileen, and who knew, you know, we're, we're both women of a certain age, may I say, <laughs> hair at any rate. And, um, you know, social media is amazing that way. It connects people that you never, you know, unexpected, and so anyway, it's a delight, no matter how we met. And, and uh, I, I, what I have to say about Marsha and what readers are going to find it amazing to, uh, to believe is that Marsha was a classical musician, and I always think of classical musicians as stuffy geniuses. I have to be frank, because that's been my experience. I, I try to stay away from nerds because uh, my daughter played clarinet all through school and uh, I didn't want to add to that nerd image of, of her that she might have had for herself or her friends had or anyone who wasn't in high school band had. But um, Marcia, you play the oboe and I know nothing about the oboe except that it sits in between kind of the flutes and the clarinet. So can you tell us a little bit about your instrument first? Sure. Uh, I played the oboe for 28 years professionally, and I should say that I, I resigned from that position, that profession in 2008. But the oboe is a wind instrument. It's made from grenadilla wood, which is a very hard wood from Africa, the same, in, um, the same wood that uh, the clarinet is made from. And it's thinner than the clarinet. It's about the same size as the clarinet. It's conical, it's, it's a tube instrument. And the difference, the main difference between the oboe and the clarinet, because they're mistaken from afar at times, is that the, the oboe has a double reed, which you make and you put into the top of the oboe. The clarinet has a flat single reed, which you put against a mouthpiece. And this is all to say that when you blow into these reeds or mouthpieces, uh, the wood vibrates against each other. The two blades vibrate, makes the sound and goes through the instrument and creates the sound for the instrument. So the oboe is kind of the 
queen of the wind section, I would say, or the king of the wind section, depending on the gender of the person playing it, of the orchestra. We play the tuning note uh, when the orchestra tunes up. And in in classical literature and romantic literature, or cla you know, classical music, the oboe oftentimes has some of the most beautiful solos written by Beethoven, Mozart, all the composers that we think of. Um, there's a very, it has a very special, poignant, warm sound, and it is memorable to to a lot of people. Why are there, that, sorry? Why are there so fewer oboe players than clarinet players? Let's say. Oh boy. Okay, so the oboe is much harder to play. Excuse me, all you clarinetists out there, but I think anyone who's a professional clarinetist would admit the oboe is has such an exacting. Uh, 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 a sense of difficulty. It, it's, it's just really, really hard to sound good. And when you're a young person in elementary school, for instance, they don't even offer the oboe, you know, because it's very hard to start on that. So students will typically start on flute or clarinet. And then if they have an interest and someone needs an oboe, as it was in my case when I was in junior high school, um, you can try the oboe and see how you do, but you sound pretty awful for a while. It sounds like a duck, you know, quite <laughs> no control whatsoever. And if you get the bug, it's, it's, a, it's just a really, really difficult instrument to play. Probably one of the most difficult, with the exception, probably uh, the violin is, is about as difficult as the oboe, I would say. And is there, it, is there any kind of, do men usually play it more, more frequently? Women, is it about 50-50? It's about 50-50. Um, women in classical music didn't come into the forefront until the 60s, I'd say, in orchestras. And um, and that sort of broke through when they started having auditions behind screens so that the audition committee couldn't tell the gender. And as a matter of fact, they even put carpeting on the floor so you could hear the tap, tap, tap of a woman's heels. That's when women started getting into orchestras. So this is typical of any industry in, in America through the years, of course. Um, but now there's there's plenty of men, plenty of women. It's about equal, I'd say. Okay, and I'm going to uh, lead lead our viewers. I don't want to give give away too much because there's so much in here uh, to learn about music, about oboes, about people who play in orchestras. But um, your very early exposure to music was not because anyone in your family was musical or played an instrument. I think um, you probably met a lot of musicians who come to their instruments and their their profession via that way, via a family member. Yours was lying on the floor while your mother vacuumed around you playing a record of an opera singer. And she, she is an inspiration through the entire book and um, based on the book through your entire life. So can you tell us a little bit about Kirsten Flagstad, please? Right, so my mother played the, the opera was Tristan and Isolde by Richard Wagner. And Kirsten Flagstad in the 50s, she was a Norwegian opera singer. She uh, was mainly known for her Wagnerian uh, portrayals of the of Brunhilde, say for instance, in the Ring Cycle. And my mother, for some reason, 
And she was very, very famous, very famous opera singer. And my mother, for some reason, loved her singing in this one particular album. And it was, uh, the aria was the, called the Liebestode, which is at the end of the opera where Tristan has poisoned himself. Um, he's dead and uh, uh, Kirsten Flagstad as Isolde is about to take the poison so she can join him in the afterlife. Okay, so it's not a good ending. Let's put it that <laughs> way. Um, but in any case, I didn't know any of that because I was four years old, of course. And I heard this music and I was transported by her sound. Her sound was um, a, not a typical soprano sound that we imagine an opera singer would have. It had a silvery burnished quality to it. And of course, for an, a singer, an opera singer to, ha to sing Wagner, which is a very specific skill for a soprano, not all sopranos can do it, very few, it's rare, very few can do it. She um, just had this sound quality that I fell in love with. And really what was happening when I was four years old and listening to Wagner lying on my back in the carpet and my mother, you know, uh, vacuuming around me, I was actually looking for my mother. I was looking for connection with my mother at the time. I see this in retrospect, of course, only. At four years old, I didn't know what I was doing. And my mother would happen to be a, a, a profoundly distancing person, which I write about in the book. And the book is essentially, I'm trying to find my mother. I'm trying to get close to my mother throughout my life, and I never succeed in doing that. But I understood on a very um, intuitive level when I was four years old that this music of Wagner, um, this Liebestod, which means love death in German, was actually a profound expression of love. So here was the four-year-old girl lying on the carpet her mother all around her, but not connecting in any way, sort of ignoring her. And I was just wallowing in this music that I knew was an expression of love. And it really became kind of a sound template for me later on when I was playing instruments, when I started on the flute and then changed to the oboe. And it became a really um, an unconscious way that I connected to that specific sound, which meant love, which I never got from my mother. And yet, and yet you never, or in the book, there's never a point where you wish to become uh, an opera singer. No, I, I, I never did. I just was uh, drawn to that particular sound, which in retrospect, I really actually tried to emulate on that on the oboe. Um, and this is all, you know, we see so much in retrospect in life course. And, I, and, and also with the help of writing this memoir even, it has illuminated so much of how I was operating when I was a young person. Um, and really I didn't look back too much to think about it. I was just going through and playing my instrument and being good at it and getting praise for it and going through. And somehow I ended up sounding on the oboe the way I do. And it wasn't a typical American sound. It was more of a German sound and more rounded, covered, burnished silver you know kind of a um not a silvery so much but amp uh bronze sound so to speak so i hope yeah. that um that will be uh copyright wise allowed to um play some of your uh, favorite recording of yours during the episode i'd like to make time for that and i also want to say that i i was uh 
really thrilled in the book by how lucky or how, how fortunate you were to have teachers who appreciated your talent so early on. I mean, here was a girl in front of them and you really did not come from a loving, warm family by any means. In fact, it was really the opposite when you come, come right down to it. And somehow I think these, these teachers of yours were intuitive enough to understand that this was gonna be your lifeline and or they were just wholly impressed by the talent you showed at such a young age. Yes, I was very, very lucky, um, you know, to have these mainly three pedagogues and the, the, the word pedagogue means to lead the child. It comes, it's a Greek, um, it comes from the Greek, I believe. And they really, I was a, a, a doer child. I wasn't an outgoing, lively child because I was, um, I was enduring so much of what was going on in my family. There was physical abuse, there was uh, distancing. You know, my father was kind of a brute and my mother was not, not rescuing her children at all from this type of uh, chaotic atmosphere that I grew up in. And I think that these teachers, Mr. first Mr. Proud in elementary school and then Mr. Fulginetti later on and then my teacher in, co in music conservatory later, they understood that they were dealing with, I think, a, a young girl who had secrets, certainly, couldn't talk about her secrets, but everything was being expressed through the instrument. And I was very lucky, very lucky. And then later on in your life, um, you, you were lucky, again, lucky enough, and I'm not discounting your skill by any means, but. I think you can be the most skilled person in the world and yet not um, have experiences that bring you to the pinnacle of your profession. You were chosen for a full scholarship at, at a very, uh, very um, famous music school in New York City, and that took you out of your parents' purview, and, but put you on your own. And although the scholarship paid for your tuition, it didn't pay your expenses and you didn't have the support of your parents. And one of the parts of the book that I found astounding, I mean, I guess you could probably laugh about it now, is you're living off of lettuce and Russian salad dressing because you found that you could, from someone else told you, oh, listen, you can go to this diner, they'll give you a whole head of lettuce and you would order a whole head of lettuce and kind of put the Russian dressing in between the leaves and chomp away, and that would sustain you minimally to keep going, keep playing, and also working because you were on a work study actually acting as a, as a nanny for children who wouldn't even give you the time to practice. So your early time in school um, is, is portrayed very vividly in the book, but again, the right instructors found you and you found the right instructors, but yet you did head off in a kind of a, a self-destructive path as you were in school. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Right, so just, uh, you know, just full disclosure in the book, um, yes, I did come from a, an abusive background and my father was sort of obliquely sexually abusing me, but it was more about power. And he held sway over me because I basically, um, you know, had to do what he wanted in order for him to, 
to send me uh, to take me to my oboe lessons. So he really held the uh, the most important thing to to me was I knew I wanted my oboe lessons, and if if I was to go to my oboe lessons, then I had to actually do his bidding. Um, and it was a, a mild sexual abuse. It wasn't anything. I mean, it was horrible because it went on for my whole childhood. But in any case, this set up a template for how I viewed men. And it's so interesting that we're having this conversation now because, you know, Weinstein is out. And, you know, honestly, when a young child is objectified in any way, shape or form vis-a-vis -vis her body, that child will then interact with men later in life with that as operating in some manner forevermore. It's very, very, very hard for young women to disconnect that kind of connection, that they are worthy because of this thing. And that's what happened to me, actually. And so that was my template for how to behave to men, how to get what I wanted from men. And so really this the memoir is really my narrative life about my my life sort of working all of that out through my young adulthood and at the same time actually succeeding on an incredibly high level in my art form and i kept the two lives separate i managed to do that so to your question eileen um as I was trying to work out how I was going to get through college, eating enough, you know, working enough, dealing with these little brats across the street, <laughs> and, and um, I was free. I was on my own. I was in New York City at large, and I was meeting men. And I began to make choices with men that were essentially a reflection of how my father saw me, which was just an instrument whereby he got what he wanted and he I would get what I wanted. And so that's how I played it out with men in my early life. And it was very dangerous and very, I took a lot of risks, which I do, tell about in the book, actually. And there but the grace of God, uh, did I survive this. And we're, we're so glad you did. And when you say the word instrument, I kind of shiver because it's uh, you as an instrument in some ways and you with your instrument where, where, where the redemption came. Can you read yes. us a little passage about from the book about um, playing? Because uh, the book is structured so that the story of your life is is in regular type, and then a lot of the uh, the parts that deal with playing in orchestras, learning the pieces, is in italics. And those parts, of course, are so beautiful in contrast to what must have been the, the terrible pain of your life. So can you read us one of those beautiful italicized parts, please? I surely can. This is a short passage. And um, just to say a little bit more, these two sections in the book which alternate, the narrative part of my personal life is in the first person. You know, I, I went to the store and this sort of thing. And the, the, the music portions, which you say are as, as true as are, are in italic, is in the second person. This is the you point of view. And so this on the page also 
um, in a physical manifestation of separating the two lives, which actually is physically manifested in the book as well. So can I just do it from here? Is this okay? Yep. Yep. Okay, this is a section that's called sound. Your sound, distinctive among New York players, has become something of a calling card. Oboists arrive early for rehearsals, needing to fully warm up in order to play the tuning A for the rest of the orchestra. Through the years, other musicians mentioned that they knew who was playing the oboe well before seeing you. As they came down the stairs from Carnegie Hall dressing rooms onto that stage or into any rehearsal studio in town, your signature sound preceded your face. It was that distinct and unusual. They described it as European, German. You think of it as just emerging from your heart. If you don't love your sound, it hampers your ability to spin music the way you imagine. Sound is like a fingerprint to musicians. To fully and freely express music with commitment, your sound must reside deep in a corner pocket like a cube of sugar left on the tongue to disintegrate in its own time. You have a sound ringing in your ears all day, every day, that cannot be silenced. It is your essence, your soul turned inside out, exposing you for the world to notice, scrutinize, and perhaps love. Now, I, I don't only love what... I imagine your sound to be, which I hope to hear soon, but also that passage, because um, I think any musician would read that and would, would probably say, wow, she was able to really say what makes me special, what bonds me to my instrument and to the, the composer and to the music that I'm hearing. So, but you did eventually, you did, as you said, you retired um, in 2007, what, what, or 2008, what, what made you retire and was it, did you know you were going to write this book when you retired? Ah, uh, no, I didn't know I was going to write my book. Actually, wait a minute. I had just, let's see, I was about to start writing my book and let me backtrack. Um, the uh, in 2000 i uh had breast cancer which is in the book okay and um while i was struggling through that i took a drafting class at an interior design school just on a whim on a lark i wasn't looking to get out of music in any way shape or form um, I took the drafting class, and as I went through treatment for breast cancer, um, I got my degree as a BFA in interior design, okay? And I started my business in 2002, but I was still performing in music full freight, right? So as the clients got, you know, I got more clients and more referrals, I began to, my business began to flourish, and from 2002 to 2008, I actually swapped over my careers and I started taking less and less music positions until the point that in 2008, I finally hung up the instrument. And from, so I would say from 2002 to 2016, a year ago, I worked as an interior designer. 
Okay, so this is to your question. When I was an interior designer, I began a blog. And as I was blogging about, you know, trends and what you should do and blue couch, red couch, things like that, on my website, I was also writing about creativity because here I was in two very creative art forms. And that's what I was very interested in writing about. Um, you know, various aspects of things that I'd thought about for many years and I decided, well, this is the place to put it down on, on the page. So I was writing these short blogs. Then I started writing about my experiences as an oboist, those kind of breakthrough moments on stage when things got a little woo-woo and, you know, things that things happened which don't happen all the time in concerts. We want them to go very, very well. Sometimes they go exceptionally well. And those are the things that I started writing about in short essays. And all this time I thought, hmm, maybe this could be a book. And I thought, well, I'm gonna write a book on creativity. And I'm gonna bring in these passages about when I was writing, uh, when I was playing the oboe, and also when I was um, designing also. And um, all this time I thought I was writing a book on creativity. And I'd gotten in about 20,000 words. And then I wrote the passage at the beginning of the book when I was lying on my back on the floor of and listening to the Liebestode. Shortly thereafter, I actually then realized in the middle of the night that I was writing a memoir. That came at about, I'd say, 2010, 2011, when I actually realized mm, I'm writing about myself. And of course, it was a little daunting, you know, because most people think, well, what's so special about my life that I would ever want to write a book or that anyone would want to? And I thought I would self-publish it and, you know, maybe I would go. So all this time, I was not, then in 2008, I wasn't playing the oboe anymore and I was had a full client load in interior design and I just kept writing. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and I got, I got enough words down and I thought I had it done and I got an agent and then I sold it to Little Brown. So that's how it happened. Okay, well, I'm, I'm sorry, so sorry to say, Marsha, we're getting to be out of time, but I have to say, if there was ever a Renaissance woman in the world, it has to be you. What's, what's next for you now that you've finished two careers, you've written a successful memoir, I, it's, are you gonna take up surfing? It's hard for me to think of what you're gonna do next. <laughs> well, uh, th thank you. Yeah, so since when I sold my book to Little Brown, um, I wrote a novel, and that is out for sale to publishers now, and I've just started my next novel. Actually, this past week, I started a next novel. So I really consider I'm a writer now, and I no longer do interior design, and but in my heart, I'm still a musician because I go to a lot of concerts, of course, still, and I go to the Metropolitan Opera. I'm in New York City. I go there a lot. And um, to me, honestly, Eileen, um, the three art forms that I've been involved in, the creativity aspect, that flow of creative, creative energy actually feels the same to me. It just feels like it's wrapped up in a different blanket. I think that's a wonderful way to describe it. And I have to say, I, you are a truly remarkable person. Um, for my viewers, you will be so happy if you pick up the book, The Skin Above My Knee. Um, I really hope that someday when I come to New York and I try to go fairly frequently for theater, I would love to sit and chat for another two hours, three hours, four hours, and also hear more about your interior design business because that's... Like you say, it's all part of the creative stream, but it's certainly different because 
maybe you're on a platform where you're um, where you've got one person judging you as opposed to an entire audience of people and critics but um, everyone in the audience may not hear what what you want them to hear and may not notice mistakes where if you're doing red couch blue couch your client may go oh no I wanted a green couch but in any case, I'm so excited to speak with you, and I'll be looking forward to hearing more about a novel that will hopefully be sold, and the next novel will stay in touch. And I want to thank yes. you so much for appearing on Books Too. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. And I would urge anyone who write, reads the book to reach out to me on my website. I love getting feedback. And I'll meet you in New York City. Sounds Absolutely. great. It's a date. Thank you, Marsha. Thank you. Okay, viewers, that's it. We had had a great time. Wish we had two hours more. And if Marsha and I ever get together, you'll be the first to know or the second. Thanks and good night from Books 2.